All right, so Hebrews, the better letter. Well, this is the ninth study in our uh, quarter of the book of Hebrews. And last week, we studied Hebrews chapter 9. All right, Kevin, the screen's messed up. Hebrews chapter 9. And we studied about how Jesus gives us a better sanctuary. In Hebrews chapter 9, we were comparing what the old covenant and the old law how their sanctuary was comparing to what the new covenant and the new law and the sanctuary found in it. And spoiler alert, just like every other week, the new law is better. The new sanctuary is better. And that's exactly what we found out last week. Why was that? If you'll remember, last week we talked about how there was a holy place in the old sanctuary. A certain amount of people were allowed at a certain amount of time, and then there was a most holy place. And we talked about all of that and the different distinctions that's found in those different things. But what we found out, and what we got into last week, is that only a certain amount of people were allowed in the most holy place, or the holy, the holy place. And so we found out that the new sanctuary through Jesus Christ is a bit different. Why? Because we're all allowed to be in front of the mercy seat of the throne of God. That is because Jesus Christ is the perfect sacrifice of the perfect sanctuary of the perfect covenant. More than that, though, we saw that the old sanctuary was earthly. It was a copy. It was a shadow of something greater. It was inaccessible, like we just said. It was temporary. It wasn't forever. It was meant for a certain amount of time, and then that was it. And then lastly, we saw that it could not purify the conscience totally. Well, that's the old sanctuary. And then the new sanctuary, we saw that it is heavenly. It is not earthly. We saw it is effective with sin. It takes care of sin totally. Not just halfway, not just rolling it forward, it takes care of it all the way. We also saw that it takes a more costly sacrifice. It is a sense of a fulfillment. And lastly, it is final and complete. And so tonight we're going to be studying more about this train of thought when it comes to the covenant, the sanctuary, the sacrifice, because that's exactly what chapter 10 delves into. I want to explain it this way. Hebrews chapter 8, if you remember, we talked about Jesus giving us a better covenant. And within chapter 8, we saw that it was talking about the covenant, the law, the promises, the conditions that God has made between Himself and man through Jesus Christ. And so really in chapter 8, the writer of Hebrews is talking about the what. The what. And then... Chapter 9 is going to be talking about the where. Where was the covenant carried out? That's the sanctuary. In chapter 9, we talked about the sanctuary. This is the place in which the law and the promises and the conditions of that covenant were carried out. This is the where in Hebrews chapter 9. So tonight in Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to be talking about the how. How was the law carried out? How was the law carried out in the sanctuary? Well, that is through sacrifices. In chapter 9, we're going to be talking about how the sacrifice 
was conducted in the sanctuary to fulfill the covenant. So we've talked about the what, we've talked about the where, we've talked about tonight, after tonight, about the how. And throughout the whole study, who has been the who? Now that would be Jesus. And next week we're going to be talking about the why in Hebrews chapter 11. So tonight, uh, we're going to be diving even deeper into the discussion that we kind of started last week about sacrifice about the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant, and we're going to be comparing it to the one of the New Covenant. We're going to be seeing and witnessing just how much greater than, superior to, and better than the sacrifice of Christ truly is to the sacrifices found in the Old Covenant. Just a reminder, if you go ahead and open up your Bible, if your copy of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 9, the study we had last week in Hebrews chapter 9, the writer has already talked about Christ's sacrifice a lot. He's already alluded to it a lot. In chapter 10, he's just going to dive even more deeply into it. If you look at chapter 9 in verse 12, it's going to talk about how this is not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. In verse 13, right after that, he's going to talk about how the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer were able to sprinkle the unclean and sanctify the purifying of the flesh. Then he talks about, well, how much more then shall the blood that is sprinkled on the children of God in the new covenant with the better sacrifice, how much more is that able to cleanse your conscience from dead works? And then lastly, in chapter 9, and verse 23, he says, it's going to take some better sacrifices than these to truly atone for sin. So he's been talking about the sacrifice of Jesus over and over again and alluding to it here and there. But chapter 10 is really when the writer is going to really delve in deeper into exactly what the sacrifice of Jesus means, what it meant, and what it will always mean as time goes on. More importantly, he's going to be talking about what the sacrifice of Jesus should drive us and compel us to do in response. So this idea of sacrifice, you know, the past couple of weeks we've been diving into what the Old Testament has to say about ideas such as the covenant, such as the sanctuary, because we need a little bit bigger context to understand what the writer of Hebrews is trying to talk about. So we've looked at the Old Testament and exactly what that means, exactly what that would have looked like, and we did that, as I said, to get a better grasp to get a better comparison of what the writer is trying to say to the original audience, as well as to try to make better sense of some of the themes that we may not really talk about too often in the New Covenant, in the New Testament. We don't talk about the sanctuary as often as we do other things. We don't talk about this idea of covenant the way we do and we read about in the Old Testament. However, instead of looking back at the Old Testament tonight to look at some examples of sacrifice. We've been talking about that for weeks, have we not? About the Old Covenant and the, and the sacrifices that were found within it and the high priest offering a sacrifice for himself and then for the people and all the different things that have come up throughout the book of Hebrews already. 
When it comes to the idea of sacrifice, I think most of us, if not all of us, have a great, pretty good grasp on that. Why? Because every week, week in and week out, we talk about sacrifice, don't we? Week in and week out in the New Covenant, we talk about this idea of sacrifice. In fact, each and every Sunday, what do we do? We focus on the sacrifice of Jesus through the Lord's Supper. In fact, we talked about time and time again about how we are to present our lives as a living sacrifice. We're told time and time again that we are to sacrifice ourselves to put God first, are we not? So when we think about the idea of sacrifice, it's not as different, it's not as vague, it's not as ambiguous as certain ideas as the sanctuary or the covenant or certain other themes throughout the book of Hebrews. We hear the word sacrifice in our everyday life, don't we? Someone will really say, you know, to, to, to really advance in your job, what are you going to have to do? Well, you're going to have to sacrifice some other things. You're going to have to put extra time into that job. Well, if you want to make your relationship with your husband or with your wife a little bit better, what are you going to have to do? Well, you're going to have to sacrifice certain things in your life and put and redirect that to your wife or to your husband or to your children, or to whatever you're trying to improve. We get the idea of sacrifice. It's losing something that we want. It's sacrificial. And so we understand this idea of sacrifice more so than some of the other themes throughout the book of Hebrews. You know, when it comes to God's Word, the, the idea of sacrifice could be the most fundamental one of the most fundamental elements of the whole Bible. God's Word from the beginning talks about sacrifice. In fact, the Hebrews writer in chapter 9 and verse 22, what does he say? In 9.22 he says, Without the shedding of blood there is no remission. So without sacrifice there is no remission, forgiveness, or, or any type of relief of sin and so obviously we see all the way back at the patriarchal age of Abraham Isaac and Jacob guess what was required sacrifice from then to the mosaic age of Moses the kings and the prophets guess what was required sacrifice fast forward to the Christian age of the apostles the church and us tonight guess what's required a sacrifice. It's pretty obvious that the idea of sacrifice is pretty central, pretty crucial to the overall flow and theme of the Bible. So tonight, how does Jesus give a better sacrifice than that of the Old Testament? We don't have to consult the Old Testament to understand this idea because we've been alluding to this idea throughout the entire book of Hebrews. Instead, we're going to get right into the text itself in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1. Would you read with me? It says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices with which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. 
For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. You see what he's already getting into within these first four verses of the book of Hebrews. You know, it's impossible to read these verses and not find the need for something better. When we read these verses, we see something is missing. Something is wrong, not good enough. Well, what is that? Well, we see that the very nature of the Old Testament sacrifices, these sacrifices under the old law, they're by nature inferior to the sacrifice we see in the New Testament. The text talks about this, this sacrifice being a shadow of the things to come. We've talked about this theme a lot in the book of Hebrews, haven't we? This idea of a shadow or a copy. Look back at chapter 8 and verse 5. Chapter 8 and verse 5, talking about the covenant, it's talking about this copy and shadow of heavenly things. Look at chapter 9 and verse 24. It talks about the copies of the true. And then here again in chapter 10 and verse 1, we see the shadow of good things to come. You see, everything, the reason that chapter 8 and verse 13 exists about making the old covenant, the old law, obsolete is because the old law, the old covenant, the old sanctuary, the old sacrifice, guess what it was? Inferior. Why? Because it was a shadow of the thing that was to come. It was simply a copy, a facsimile, and we've talked about that over and over throughout the book of Hebrews. And so we see by the intrinsic nature of the Old Testament sacrifice that it's inferior to the new. Why? Because it was offered every single year without ever making anything perfect. Without ever fully atoning for sins. Look what it says. Can never with these same sacrifices with which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. Year by year, sacrifice by sacrifice, it didn't fully atone for sins. Just like we talked about at the close of last week's class, instead of a remission, it was simply just a reminder. In the Old Covenant, the sacrifices that were performed, it was simply a reminder of the sins every single year, year in and year out. The writer would even say that for then they would not have ceased to be offered for the worshipers. Once purified would have no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there were a reminder of sins every year. This reminder that you have not fully atoned for your sins. You've just rolled them forward year by year and year. And we've talked about that last week. You see the old covenant sacrificial system was simply a reminder. Not a sense of remission. Why? Well, the writer says because the sacrifice was based on the blood of bulls and goats, which he says could never take away the sins. He says it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away 
sins. It doesn't matter how many bulls, how many goats, how many anything were offered, it only ever rolled forward and forward and forward. If you want a better picture of this idea, you can think of it this way. The Old, Te- the Old Testament, the Old Covenant sacrificial system would only cover the nation's sins. While the New Covenant and the New Sacrifice cleansed the sin. The Old Covenant would cover it and the New Covenant cleanses it. Well, Ben, what about the Day of Atonement? This Day of Atonement, does the word atonement not mean remission? Does it not mean forgiveness? Does it not mean what I think it means? In the Day of Atonement, would the sins not be taken care of? When the high priest would enter the most holy place and sprinkle blood everywhere and offer the sacrifices for the sins of the people, was it not enough? Was it not adequate? No, it wasn't. That's exactly what the writer is saying. It never accomplished the remission of sins. It only ever accomplished the remembrance of sins. Well, look at Leviticus chapter 4 and verse 20. Leviticus chapter 4 and verse 20, it says, And he shall do with the bull as he did with the bull as a sin offering. Thus he shall do with it. So the priest shall make atonement for them, and it shall be forgiven them. Ben, are you saying their sins weren't forgiven? No, I'm saying that they were forgiven. They simply weren't taken care of totally. What I mean is, there is no flaw Well, if there is no flaw in the old, there would be no need for a new sacrifice. The old covenant sacrifice would forgive the sinner, but it would never cleanse the sin that was committed. Does that make sense? Individual people that followed the old covenant could get forgiveness. But that sin that was committed never was cleansed no matter what was offered. And so there is a flaw. There is an inadequacy. There is an inferiority within this old covenant sacrifice, and so there needed to be something else. There needed to be something new. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 10. It says, Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God, previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings, and the offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You see, God saw that sacrifices man could come up with was not going to produce enough. He looked down and he saw that man was killing animals, bulls and goats. Why? Because he told him to. But he saw that it wasn't ever going to be enough. Left to their own resources, they could not come up with something that would be ever good enough. So guess what he did? He prepared a sacrifice for us. He made the sacrifice a new sacrifice himself. 
And because He made this newly prepared sacrifice, since God gave us this prepared sacrifice, what does verse 9 say? Verse 9 says, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He has taken away the first that He may establish the second. Here's this idea of making the first, the old, obsolete. He has taken away the first system of sacrifice and has established the new. What is the new? That is His Son. And the old has become obsolete. Because of this newly prepared sacrifice, it says that we have the ability to be sanctified and set apart through the sacrifice of Jesus that is once for all. Do you realize how different and how completely in opposition this is to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament? He talks about it over and over again, about how the priest would have to do it year by year, day by day, offering sacrifices for the people. Here's a bull, here's a goat, here's a sheep, here's whatever you can do, and never was enough. But here, this sacrifice of Jesus is once for all. And it is able to sanctify the person to whom it is offered. You see these, these quotations from the Psalms here is talking about Jesus. Jesus is the full fulfillment of these words. Jesus Christ is the one who went to do the will of God. He came to fulfill God's will. And what was that will? To offer us a better sacrifice. Well, what does verses 11 through 18 say? It says, And every priest stands, notice that, Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and their minds, I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. You know, I love just reading this text and seeing how blunt the writer of Hebrews is. We talked about last week how he was just trying to, not trying, he was effectively blowing their mind. He does it yet again in this section, in this chapter that we're studying tonight. This is an audience of Jews who looked up to the high priesthood. They held them in high esteem. We've talked about that in chapters 5 and chapter 7. Guess what he's doing in chapter 10? He's basically telling everyone and exposing to the world how useless the work that they were doing was. How useless it really was now that Jesus' sacrifice had come. Basically, that they had been wasting their time all these years since Jesus had come to the earth. 
All these sacrifices, all these bulls, all these goats were simply a waste of time. Hey, you know this Jesus, this, this guy that you're not sold on? Guess what? Not only did he offer himself, he only had to do it once. And the rest is history. The work of the priest, even though they stood day after day, it says, they stand daily offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never, off, can never take away sins. They had no real value in their sacrificial system. Look at the difference. Remember I told you to notice this. In verse 11 it says, Every priest stands. But what does it say about our Jesus? In verse 12. It says that He is seated. That He has sat down at the right hand of God. We've talked about this idea before thus far in our study of Hebrews that those who are standing, though it may seem like they're in authority, it just simply means that their work is not complete. You know, you, you work all day on the farm. Growing up, I worked, up, worked on the farm all day. The other day, I went home, visit my parents. Guess what they had me do? Work on the farm. Pick up some gates here, do this, that here. They're trying to sell the farm, trying to make it look good. Stood up all day, worked all day long. Guess what I did when I got home? I sat down. Why? Because I was tired. My work was done. I had completed the tasks my dad asked me to do. Guess what? Same with Jesus. He is seated beside the right hand of His Father because His work is complete. But guess whose work is never going to be complete? That would be the priest under the old covenant system of sacrifice. They stand day after day, daily in the temple, in the sanctuary, trying to offer sacrifices for sins, and while they're standing, Jesus sits. The priest's work is never complete, and Jesus' work is complete and eternally will be finished. The difference is the sacrifice that was offered. The sacrifice that perfects perpetually as many as are being sanctified, the verse says. Verse 14, For by one offering He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Then what happens in this text? The writer brings us all the way back to Hebrews chapter 8. Remember in Hebrews chapter 8, we were talking about the covenant. What does he do? He, he brings up this idea from the book of Jeremiah chapter 31 about this new covenant that would be established between God and man. And in chapter 10, he brings it back up again. In verses 16 and 17, he brings this Jeremiah 31 prophecy up again. In chapter 8, he's telling us about the covenant. Well, this covenant I'm talking about, this is it. Chapter 10, he's telling us how it was accomplished. How can we truly get not only the forgiveness of sins, but the forgetting of sins? Well, that is through the sacrifice that we're talking about in chapter 10. Because of the superior sacrifice, they are not only able, we are not only able to get forgiven, we are able to have our sins forgotten by God. Your sins and your lawless deeds, I will remember no more, says the Lord. This better sacrifice that is performed in the better sanctuary where the better covenant is practiced. 
You see how these three chapters all interlock, interweave within itself? It's pretty amazing how he wound up doing that in this book. So this next section that we're going to be talking about is really the conclusion of the matter. In verses 19 through 25, we're really going to see the conclusion of what he's trying to say. That's why he begins the section with the word therefore. We've talked about that. In this section, this is what the sacrifice that we've just talked about, this sacrifice that is better than the blood of bulls and goats, this is what it should compel us to do. This is the knowledge that Christ's sacrifice has perfected us forever. What should that knowledge do? What should it push us towards? The knowledge in, the, in, the, in knowing that Christ's death on the cross has forgiven our sins once for all. This next section is going to tell us what that should compel us towards. This idea that Christ's sacrifice is complete. His work is done. And He, in fact, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What should that knowledge and that realization push us towards? Verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He consecrated for us through the veil that is His flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25. I want you to notice three different things throughout this passage. When the question of what should the knowledge of the sacrifice compel us towards? What should it drive us to? What should it push us towards? Notice three things within these verses. We're going to see three different let us clauses that I want you to remember tonight and never forget. Three let us phrases that the original audience needed to take to heart. And it's three things that if we don't take to heart, the story don't end well. Three let us clauses that we need to hear tonight. The first one is, he says, let us draw near. Look at it again in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In what way are we supposed to draw near? Well, he says, you need to draw near with a true heart. You need to draw near in full assurance. 
And you need to draw, draw near with your hearts sprinkled from evil. Lastly, you need to draw near with your bodies washed with pure water. Draw near to God. This sacrifice of Jesus should make us all, compel us all to draw near to God. Nearer than when we first didn't know about this sacrifice. Every single day it should draw us nearer and nearer to God. Nearer, my God, to Thee. Nearer to Thee. And in fact, he says, what he's saying is, if you do not have the true heart, if you do not have the full assurance, if you do not have the heart sprinkled, if you do not have the body washed, there is no way you can be drawing near. And if you're not drawing near, then the sacrifice was for nothing. Number two, he says, let us hold fast our confession. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us draw near, let us hold fast our confession. In the same way he tells us how we should draw near, he tells us how we should hold fast. What does he say? Without wavering. What does it mean to waver? It means to have no solid foundation. Tossed to and fro, right? He says, do not waver in this hope of your confession. And by the way, what he's saying by implication is, if you are wavering in your faith, if you are wavering without this hope, Jesus Christ is our hope, the anchor of the soul, we talked about in chapter 6. If you are wavering in your faith in a way that says that there is no God, that there is no great sacrifice, that I, just poor pitiful me, I have a terrible life, God has done nothing for me, then you're not holding fast the confession. It's hard to, to keep that faith, isn't it? Sometimes when life hits us, when the storms of life are coming all around us, it's hard to hold fast the confession of our hope with full assurance, without wavering. But you know what should keep our confession steadfast? The sacrifice of Jesus. That's exactly what he's saying in chapter 10. Number three, it says, let us consider one another. Let us consider one another. Verse 24 and 25, Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as a manner of some, but exhorting one another in so much the more as you see the day approaching. Consider one another. The same way he tells us how we should draw near, how we should hold fast our confession, he tells us how we can consider one another. Boy, we use this verse a lot, don't we? Verse 25, in the top five, is it not? You better not forsake the assembly. But do we know what context? Why we don't forsake the assembly? Is it to check a box? 
Or is it because the sacrifice of Jesus? He tells us that we should consider one another. How? By stirring up within each other love and good works, number one. And number two, by not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together. If you are not stirring up love and good works, if you aren't forsaking the assembly of the people of God, then guess what? There's no way that you are considering one another. The same way that there's no way you're holding fast to confession if you're wavering, and there's no way you're drawing near if you don't do the things He says. If you are not stirring one another up, and for, if you are forsaking the assembly, you're not considering one another. And you're not considering the sacrifice of Jesus. Notice three other things within this section, verses 19 through 25. Something cool, I think. Paul says, now these three abide, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Well, within each one of these points, draw near. He says, we draw near with faith. Hold fast our confession. He says, we do that with hope. Consider one another with love and good works. We do that with love. Faith, hope, and love, these three great Christian graces that Paul talks about is what it takes to draw near, is what it takes to hold fast, is what it takes to consider one another. And the next passage is really the bad news. The next passage is what happens when we don't allow the sacrifice of Jesus to compel us towards something. When we don't allow it to compel us to draw near, to hold fast, to consider one another, this is what will happen. Verses 26 through 31. For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and a fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be, held, will be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is the result of when we don't understand the sacrifice of Jesus. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3 real quick, just real quick reference. Remember he says in chapter 2 and verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? If we neglect so great a salvation, how will we ever make it? The, the, the bottom line was you won't if you neglect so great a salvation. Now go back to chapter 10. I believe the writer is saying somewhat the same thing in this section. If you neglect so great a sacrifice 
And you sin willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth of the greatness of Christ's sacrifice, then guess what? There is no sacrifice for you. There is no sacrifice for you if you neglect so great a sacrifice as Jesus Christ sacrificed. In the same way, if you neglect that salvation, if you neglect this sacrifice, there is nothing left for you. I believe what he's saying, if, if you don't allow Christ's sacrifice to draw you nearer to God, to make you hold fast to the confession, to make you consider one another, then there is no salvation for you. No salvation for us because we have neglected the one sacrifice that was able to give us that salvation that we've neglected. What does the writer do next? The writer, then he's going to show, guess what? There was a punishment for people who didn't follow the Mosaic Law. If you violated the Mosaic Law, if you neglected the old law, guess what? There was punishment. If two or three witnesses witnessed this, you were dead without mercy, it says. You died without mercy. That's a pretty steep penalty, is it not? If a son was to uh, really get on to his parents or something, what happened? They took him out in the street and stoned him. What happens with the adulterous woman? They took her out the street and they wanted to stone her. That's the old law. That's the punishment for violating the old law. But guess what he says about the new law? You know, this isn't what we really want to talk about, is it? He says, how much more shall the punishment be for those who violate the new law? Who've been given a better covenant? Who've been given a better sanctuary? Who've been given a better sacrifice? How much more should the punishment be for those who trample over the Son of God? For those who reckon the blood of Christ as a common thing? For those who insult the Spirit of grace. How much more should the punishment be for those who do that? You know, when, the, when we are not letting Christ's sacrifice draw us closer to God, allow us to hold fast to the confession, allow us to consider one another, we aren't doing those three let us clauses. Guess what? We are trampling over the Son of God. We are counting the blood of Jesus as a common thing. That's what he's telling his audience. When you're not having a true heart, a full assurance, a sprinkling of your heart from the evil works and a washing of your body with pure water, then you are in fact insulting the Spirit of grace. When you are wavering, then you are not holding fast the confession of your hope and you are making the blood of Christ a common thing. When you do not stir one another up and when you forsake the assembling of the saints, you are trampling over the Son of God. 
that's what the writer is saying. And when this happens, God is going to give His vengeance towards us. He says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Guess what? It's not fearful if you have Christ by your side. You know, what is the alternative? What is the alternative if Christ's blood and sacrifice cannot drive you and compel you to faithfulness, then whatever will? If the knowledge of what Christ has done for you cannot drive you to draw near, hold fast, and stir one another up, and consider one another, if the sacrifice of Jesus can't do it, what will? Nothing. And guess what else won't be enough? You can't go back to bulls and goats. Why? Because it's made obsolete. There will remain no sacrifice for your sins. There is no other alternative other than Jesus Christ. And therefore, you will have nothing but the, but the possibility, the probability, the absolute probability of you receiving the wage of your sin. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Now let's quickly read the rest of the chapter. But recall the former days in which you were illuminated and you endured great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle by both, those, by, by, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance." So that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise for yet a little while. And he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. That's chapter 10. I want to quickly talk about this section. Remember that... He has just given them the bad news in verses 26 through 31. And like any good preacher does, he gives them the good news right after. Sometimes I forget that. Sometimes people tell me, well, man, I just, I, I, I go get a cast on my foot after what happened today. But we got to give the good news after the bad news. The bad news is vengeance is coming. The good news is that we need to look back to the point in our life when we did think about the sacrifice. We can look back at this point at which we were illuminated, verse 32, and we were willing to struggle greatly with the sufferings for the Lord. And if we look back to those times, it will push us to better faithfulness. It will push us to be able to do those three let us clauses. And then he says, if you hold on yet for a little while, he's coming. He tells us that our souls will be saved if we just hold on. So what's the application for us tonight? 
We've already made a lot, I believe, of application, but let's talk about it some more. The question tonight that we have before us is the exact same question that the original audience had when they read this book. And that question is, what does the sacrifice of Jesus compel you to do? I'm not talking about what it should compel you to do. I'm asking you, what does it actually compel you to do each and every day of your life? I'm afraid that the blood of Jesus and the sacrifice that He gave us to become like the author suggests, we make the sacrifice of Jesus a common thing. I'm afraid that we take the blood of Jesus and we make it this common thing that He talks about. We know it's important. We know what it does. We know that we need it. But we forget just what it costs. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 says, For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, and being found as an appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 23-24 through 24 says, Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. afraid we hear verses like these. We hear lessons and thoughts and sermon after sermon and class after class about the sacrifice of Jesus. And I'm afraid we don't feel it anymore. I'm afraid too often we don't allow it to evoke any emotion within us any longer. When we think about the Lord's Supper, it's not about taking the blood of Jesus and the body of Jesus. It's about the little crinkle of the little cup that we have to do during this pandemic. It's not about the sacrifice of Jesus anymore. It's about, well, we need to hurry up. It's past 30 minutes. Kyle's not going to have a full 30 if we don't hurry this thing up.
what do you think about during the Lord's Supper? I can't know that. I can tell you that there are times that I do not focus. We become numb to the sacrifice of Jesus because we talk about it so much. You know what happens when we become numb, when we do not allow it to evoke any emotion within us anymore? You know what happens when that happens? There's a temptation for us to no longer draw near to God. And when we do not draw near to God, our hearts do not stay true. Our assurance becomes hesitance. Our hearts are no longer sprinkled. And we go back to the dead works. And our bodies are not washed with pure water, but are washed with tainted worldly water. When this happens, the temptation is for us to no longer hold fast to the confession of our hope. And when we don't hold fast to the confession, we waver. And when we waver, we are just like that boat we talked about a few weeks ago with no ability to withstand the waves and the storms of life tossed to and fro by the struggles and sins that have so easily overtaken us. And when this happens, yes, there's also the temptation for us to no longer consider one another. And when we do not consider one another, we do not care about stirring one another up. As long as I'm stirred, that's all right. As long as I'm doing good, that's all that matters. Regardless of whether someone else needed me to stir them up, it doesn't matter as long as I'm stirred up. Regardless of whether someone else needed help out of a rough place, spiritually, well, I wouldn't know if they were in a rough place spiritually because I've been forsaking the assembly. And I wasn't there to stir them up. You know, there are people every Sunday morning, every assembly that need somebody. They're dealing with loss. They're dealing with struggle. The sacrifice of Jesus was intended for us not to have to bear it alone. But that we could stir each other up to love and good works that we can consider one another. It's not about you. It's about the person who needs you to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. And when this happens, we haven't considered love towards our brothers and sisters to even grace our presence grace them with our presence anymore. You know, if I forsake the assembly, then what difference will it make? 
We know there are people who are battling things. Look at our past Sunday morning. The man who preaches his heart out every Sunday needed help. And if we aren't here to consider one another and stir one another up, and if we forsake the assembly, then we are placing the sacrifice of Jesus underneath our feet and we're trampling it. When this happens, we have taken the precious blood of Jesus and we've made it a common thing. Something I can take when I'm ready for it. Something I can leave behind when I don't want it. And when we do that, we make the sacrifice of Jesus no more valuable than the blood of animals. And ultimately, we insult the Holy Spirit and we are bound for the vengeance of the living God as he says in Hebrews chapter 10. Instead, the sacrifice of Jesus should push us to draw near. It should compel us to hold fast and it should drive us to consider one another. Chapter 8 talks about the what? The covenant. Chapter 9 talks about the where? The sanctuary. Chapter 10 talks about the how? The sacrifice. And next week, chapter 11, we're going to be talking about the why. But every week, throughout the whole of Hebrews, Jesus is the who. Thank you for your attention tonight. We're going to have Brother Gene Clover come and close us in a word of prayer.